good to see you guys again this morning. It's just a pleasure and an honor to be able to come and, and move our time of worship now from um, worshiping through song to worshiping through the proclamation of the words of, of Christ found in the Scripture. So if you want to open up your Bibles to uh, Paul's letter uh, to the Corinthians, so 2 Corinthians, we're going to look at his second letter there, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We are going to be uh, landing there once we... Um, work through our topic, and that's going to be our point of application looking at that scripture there. So if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible, 2 Corinthians 4, we'll be looking at verses 4, 5, and 6 once we, once we get there. So what I'm going to do is pray for us, and then we're going to take off and look at this attribute of God. Um, God is omnipotent. God is all-powerful. So let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I ask that your words would go forth from my mouth. Even though it is me speaking, I pray that, Spirit, you would carry these words forward and you would land them hard on our hearts and where we need to be rebuked because we are loving sin more than God. God, would you do that rebuking in our hearts? Where we are honoring Christ rightly in our lives, would you encourage us and exhort us Would the Spirit of God come and do these things now? Give us not only ears to hear, but eyes to see and help enable us to go forth and do all for the name's sake of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, if you will remember, last week we started the last leg of our attribute journey. We've been looking um, at various attributes of God in the God is series. And our time in this series is very quickly uh, dwindling down. Today we're looking at the last of God's purpose attributes. These are a very short group. Last week we looked at the will of God. Today we're going to touch on the omnipotence of God, the all-powerfulness of God. And then next week, uh, Pastor Hubert is going to come up here, and he's going to close out the series for us. And then the God Is series will be done. And then in the month of December, we'll move into a season of Advent as we move and look forward and cast our mind's eye towards the coming of Christ in his birth. So, uh, what we're going to do today is look at omnipotence. God is omnipotent. So, um, this is one of his purpose attributes. God is the God of will. God has desires and purposes, and he sets forth to do things. And God's omnipotence, God's power, is one of those omni-attributes that comes along and really gives the strength and the force and the power, the muscle, for God to be able to carry out his desires, his purposes. So, we have... God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. God is omnipresent, which means he is everywhere present. He is all-present. And then we have omnipotence. He is omnipotent. Omni means all, and potent means power. God is all-powerful. Now, the one who cannot do what he wills and perform all his pleasure cannot be God. So that's why we cannot divorce this idea of God being a God of will and God being a God of all power. For us to have a right understanding of God means that we must see God as being the all-powerful one. So, in order to get a better understanding of this attribute this morning, we're going to first define God's omnipotence and then touch on some ways in which God's power comes to us and is seen in the Scriptures. So we're going to do this in a threefold way this morning. We're first going to do um, a definition see how we can define omnipotence, define God's all-powerfulness, then 
see that God's omnipotence is limitless, but in the same breath, limited. And then we're going to get a more full understanding and see one of the ways in which scriptures comes along and couples this idea of God's omnipotence, and it always seems to be couched in the language of creation. So we're going to look at God's omnipotence, God's power as seen in his power to create, and then also in his power to save. So first, let's turn our attention to God's omnipotence and a definition of that. So for God to be omnipotent means this. God is able to do all his holy will. God is able to do all his holy will. So God has a will, and it is in right accord, and it will always produce right behavior according to who he is, by the nature of who he is, according to his holiness, to his grace, his mercy, his love, his omniscience. God has a will, he has desires, he has purposes, he has plans, and these plans are always going to come about, and he is able to bring them about because he has that all-powerfulness to bring about everything according to his holy will. God is all-powerful. And when we talk about God's power, we are referencing his own power to do what he decides to do. You can think of God's omnipotence as the backside of a coin, with the front side being God's will. Omnipotence and will come together and give us a robust understanding of how God accomplishes his purposes in the world. God's will has to do with deciding and approving the things that God is and does. It concerns God's choices of what to do and what not to do. So omnipotence is the power of God to bring about the very things that he wills to do. And the scriptures speak of this power in various ways. We see God's power is, power is ascribed to God's name. Psalm 24, verse 8. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. We see the prophet Jeremiah pose this question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And he responds in verse 17 of chapter 32 this way, Ah, oh, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth, and by your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. So Jeremiah comes along and he sees this question, this somewhat rhetorical question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything where God says, I can go here, but I can't go there? Is there anything where he can go, I can go 95% of the way, but that last 5%, to where my sovereignty would rule and reign over all the earth, unbounded, unchecked. Is there anything that is too hard for the Lord? And Jeremiah says, I see the heavens and I see the earth and I see how they were made by God's great power and by his outstretched arm. And he draws this conclusion, absolutely nothing is too hard for the Lord. Nothing is too hard for you. We also see that God's power cannot be thwarted. Job, chapter 42, verse 2 says, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And finally, we see God's power accomplishes more than we could ever expect. Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 3, verse 20. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. So Paul comes along and says this, God is able to do. 
And not only is he able to do, but he is able to do abundantly. And not only is he able to do and do abundantly, he is able to do far more than the abundance that we would ever ask, hope, or dream. So God is not limited in his power in being able to work in our lives, to answer prayer in our lives, to work and do mighty things in our lives. He is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or could think. So... These scriptures lay for us a solid foundation of what God's power looks like. Infinite power belongs to our God for what he sets his mind to do, he absolutely accomplishes. Our God is not impotent. He is not not powerful. There is nothing that he wills to do but finds himself unable to do. Rather, God is omnipotent. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. At his beck and call and rooted in himself, God has the divine muscle to accomplish all that his will desires. But with this said, we can say this for sure, God's power is limitless, yet we also must qualify this statement by saying that just as much as God's power is limitless, it is also necessarily limited. And what this does is it brings into sharp contrast one of the great paradoxes of the Bible. Because listen to what I'm saying. I'm saying in the full breath, in in the same breath, just as much as God's power is limitless, it is boundless. There is no limits, no bounds, no place where God's sovereignty, rule, and reign cannot go. I'm coming along and saying that it is also limited. But this is a very scriptural idea. And so what I want to do is just couch for a moment how this could be possible because it helps give us right ditches that keep us on the road of orthodoxy, on the road of right thinking about God. It gives us the right avenue to travel with a right theology so we can worship God rightly. So I want to touch on this for a moment, that God's omnipotence is limitless, yes, and it is limited. So it is not contradictory. The fact that God's power is limitless and yet limited is not contradictory. Rather, God's power, which is seen as limited and limitless, goes a long way to actually magnify the excellencies of our God. It is in absolute must that our God be limitless in power. Yet it would be awful if that limitless power could somehow undo or enable God to act contrary to to his nature. It is good for us that God's power is limited according to his nature and according to the character of who he is. So what can we say about the power of God? We can say two things, that truly God's power is limitless. Our God is not constrained by anything external to himself, and he is free to do whatever he wishes to do. He is truly the sovereign king. He is the sovereign Lord. There is no external force that ever comes along and dictates to God what to do. There is no external force. There is no outside thing of God that comes and says, God, yes, you can have rule and reign here. You can have rule and reign here. Your sovereignty can extend here. But at this line, you are not allowed to go. There is no external force that comes along and looks at God and says, you can have it, you can have it, do what you want, do what you want, but here you cannot go. The scriptures do not couch things in that language. And that's sort of a hard thing for us to grasp, right? So, so an earthly example would be, thinking of the the Middle Ages, thinking of the King of England. 
the language that would sometimes be applied to a king there is he's the sovereign, he's the lord, he's the, the ruler, he's the one who reigns over the king of England. And so just for illustration purpose, let's set up that there was a point in time where the king of England just had rule and reign over the nation of Great Britain. And if his desire, if his will, if he purposed to have the land, the armies, the monies of France, there is a limit to his sovereignty. Yes, he's ruling and reigning over Great Britain. But where water meets beach, that is the limit of the island to where his sovereignty extends. It cannot go beyond that. So he cannot just walk up to the king of France and say, well, I'm the sovereign of England. You will give me your money, your armies, and your land. The king of France is going to refuse because the king of England's sovereignty doesn't extend everywhere. It extends and it has only to as far as the boundaries that he has. But God's sovereignty as the king of kings, as the king of kings over England, as the king of kings who's over France, God does not have a limit or a boundary. He does not have geopolitical barriers to where his sovereignty extends. He does not have nations or islands or oceans. God's sovereignty, God's kingdom, God's rule goes from the highest of heavens to the depth of the deepest part of the ocean, from desert to mountains. God's sovereignty extends to the four corners of the universe. Psalm 115, verse 3, comes along and verifies this. Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. King Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel chapter 4, was humbled. His prideful heart was humbled by God. And after he spends that time of wandering and is removed from that place of power... He gives us this confession in Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. He, God, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? There is nobody that comes along, eternally past, present, or future, that comes along and somehow out-wisdoms God, out-smarts God, out powers God and says, God, I see what you're doing there, and I like what you did there, and ooh, I like the direction you're going there, but wait, what in the world are you doing with this aspect of your life, or with this aspect of where you are going? Why did you do this action right here? Because if someone could come along and do that and ask that question of God, it would seem to imply that this person knows better than God and is actually higher than God in that realm, and there is nobody higher than God. God is the highest of heights. Nobody out holies God, out graces God, out mercies God, out omnipotence God. God is the perfect perfection in all these areas and all these ways. Yet, as soon as I say that, though, we have to say that when we're thinking about omnipotence, that God's power does have its limits. There are some things God cannot do. Michael, I have a glass of water right down there, and I'm sorry. But I need a glass of water right now. <laughs> Thanks, brother. I appreciate that. Glad you got that. So God's power does have its limits. There are some things God cannot do. God cannot will or do anything that would deny his own character. So remember, he said, there is no external force that comes along and puts checks and balances on who God is, but God does have an internal checks and balance system. 
On one hand, God's power is limitless in regard that no external force dictates to God what he must do. But on the other hand, God limits himself internally in right accord with his divine attributes. God's power is limited to what is consistent with his character. God is a God, holy, good, and true. And these attributes come along and temper his power, and his power will never run roughshod over his other attributes. So according to the Bible, we see things like this. God cannot lie. Numbers 23, Titus chapter 1. God is not man that he should lie. We also see that God cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2 verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. We also see that God cannot be tempted with evil. James 1 verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So God cannot lie. God cannot deny himself. God cannot be tempted with evil. Our God cannot cease to exist or cease to be God or act in a way that is inconsistent with any of his attributes. Moreover, God cannot do these things because he doesn't even desire to do them. The God of all truth has no desire to lie. See, the battleground that we fight each day is this. We can be tempted with evil. So if you just even hone in on that one example of God cannot lie, man does lie, the temptation that we battle each day is this. I know I ought to do truth. I know I ought to speak truth. I know I ought to live my life in truth. But somehow, in the fallenness of the world, that idea and the temptation comes along, I know what truth would be in this moment, but it, I think it would actually be better for me to lie. And so the battle of the will is, do I desire to lie or do I desire to be true? And that battle that we have, sometimes day in and day out, for seasons of life and seasons of life, is something that does not even show up on God's radar. Why? Because God is absolute truth. And so for him to stand there and sort of waffle, man, is it good to lie here? I know Adam and Eve sort of took of the fruit. I didn't like that, but maybe, maybe I should just tell a lie and just tell them, well, it's really not going to be that bad, and maybe I can sweep some stuff under the rug and, and make some things right. For God, the moment that God starts playing with the idea of being tempted to either do evil or to not do evil, to lie or to tell the truth, is the moment that God steps out of his godness. God never has the battle in his mind, the battle of the will, should I lie or not. The only thing that is ever constantly in the focus of God is, I will remain true to myself, and because I'm a God of truth, it is impossible for me to act out and lie, to be evil, etc. There will never be a rogue attribute that forces God to act contrary to who he is. The God of all truth has no desire to lie. Therefore, God will not use his limitless power to do something contrary to the very nature of who he is. Now, not only can we say that God's power is limitless and limited, so we're setting up in our mind just some, some ditches to help keep us in right thinking with what the scriptures are giving to us as we think about this attribute of God. So not only can we say that God's power is limitless and limited, but we can also see that the scriptures make much of God's power to create. When you read the Psalms, this is stamped all over the Psalms. A lot in the Old Testament, 
and it's even picked up in the New Testament. It's this idea that God is mighty, he's powerful, he's the creator, and it brings along this idea of see the heavens, see creation, God is powerful, God is mighty. See how God set the moon and the stars in place? He is mighty, he's powerful, he's creator. And so it's constantly tying God's omnipotence, the all-powerfulness of God, to this area of creation. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The implication of this verse is that God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. So our, our $2 smarty pants word is this. God created ex nihilo. Ex is Latin for out of, and nihilo means nothing. So when we talk about God creating, he creates ex nihilo. He creates out of nothing. So before God began to create the universe, nothing existed except God himself. And the power of God in creation is made manifest in the fact that God did not use any previously existing materials when he created the universe. Now, you and I can image God in the realm of creation in a somewhat of a way. If I am a carpenter, I can create out of a piece of wood something that did not exist. I can create a cabinet. But I don't create like God because I had to use something that was already pre-existing, a piece of wood that came out of a tree. If God were to come in and want to create a cabinet out of nothing at the beginning of the world in Genesis chapter 1, he would just simply look around, see absolutely nothing, and go, cabinet. And there would just be a cabinet made out of wood. God creates out of nothing. He is not limited to having to have existing material already present in order for him to create. God simply speaks, and material that was never existing before comes into being. And this is all over Scripture. Psalm 33, verses 6 and 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. So how were the heavens made? By the word of the Lord. How did the starry host in the sky come about? It's because God was breathing out of his mouth and they just came into being. He spoke and it happened. He commanded and all of creation stood firm. That is stamped all over the Psalms and that is the general revelation that comes to us from the Old Testament. But when we get down to the New Testament, it's not like this truth just stops and that's just something true about the Old Testament God. But John, the apostle, says this about Christ. He gives us a more fuller revelation that even as God the Father in the Old Testament is seen as the one who's creating. It's actually, it was God the Son who God the Father was working with, and all of creation was flowing through God the Son. Apostle John, John 1, verse 3 says this, All things were made through him. Him is Jesus, the Word. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Paul grabs this truth and applies it to Christ just as well. Colossians 1, 16, For by him... Who is him? Jesus. For by Jesus Christ all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The song of the 24 elders in the book of Revelation displays this truth. God's will is said to be the reason why all things existed and were created. Revelation 4. Worthy are you, our Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. 
So when you go to the end of your Bible and you're looking in the book of Revelation and the things that are come, you're going to see heaven rejoicing on constant repeat. This song, amongst other songs, worthy are you, God, worthy are you to receive worship. It is right for us to come and worship you for an infinite infinity. Why? Because you are the Lord our God, and you are worthy to receive glory, and you are worthy to receive honor, and you are worthy to receive power. Why? Why is he the one who is worthy to receive honor, glory, and power? Because he is the creator of all things, and all honor and all glory and all power flow from him. So it's right for it to flow back to him by creation. Creation existed and were created because God willed it to happen. And as God willed it to happen, he exercises his power and he brings about all created things. All of creation is a pageant that puts God's great power and wisdom on display. Creation becomes exhibit A showing how God's power and wisdom is far above anything that could be imagined by any creature. The prophet Jeremiah says it is he, God, who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. So one glance at the sun or the stars ought to convince us of God's infinite power. To study the sun is to study a minute sliver of God's creative wisdom and majestic power. So um, we are schooling our kids right now, and recently in the realm of science, we just learned about the sun and the various parts of the sun. So we learned that our sun, the sun in our solar system, is not just sort of just a glowing ball of just heat just sort of flung out there, but our sun is very intricately made. It is made up of a core, and it has a radiative and convective zone. It has a photosphere and solar flares of bits of the sun shooting off it as this thing is stars orbiting, orbiting in space. And it's got a corona, this, this gaseous layer that just sort of traps in this heat but lets heat out. And there's this really complex thing. And to step back and go, okay, our God made this magnificent star out of nihilo, out of nothing. It wasn't like God in Genesis 1 ponied up to the table and goes, okay, pulls out the creation of the world cookbook, slapped it down and goes, okay, I need a little pinch of corona. Let's see here. There's the corona spice. And so we're going to throw in a little dash of that. And I need a little, a little teaspoon of photosphere. And ah, a little solar flare would be nice. And oh, I need some convective and radiative zone. And so he's pulling from these pool of already created things that he's got all around him. And he's mixing it together and just sort of flings our star into space. It's not how it happened. God had nothing. And he steps back and goes, I want a sun in this solar system that's going to get off the right amount of heat so that the third planet that I'm going to fling into space that's going to orbit this sun will be the perfect distance to receive the right amount of heat in the right seasons of life. And so he says, I want a sun. And boom, it just comes into place. He created out of nothing. It's the power of God on display. When you turn your eyes to the heavens, what you see is not God using and mixing pre-existing material. What you see is a creative powerful, majestic, wise God going, I want this, and it happens. I want stars here, and this happens. I want planets to orbit this sun in this solar system. I want this solar system to be one of thousands of solar systems in this galaxy, and I want this galaxy to be millions of millions of galaxies in the four corners of the universe, and it's just, he's just flinging these things out into space by the pure power of his word. He's just speaking and exhibiting raw, limitless power 
so that creation would rightly reflect his power and who he is, which Paul talks on and picks up on in Romans chapter 1. A brief inspection of any leaf on a tree or of the wonder of the human hand or of any living cell ought to convince us of God's great power. Who could make all of this? Who, who could make it out of nothing? Who could sustain it day after day for endless years? Such infinite power, such intricate skill is completely beyond our comprehension. That is why power, strength, and might belong to our God. Like, this is true of the God that you worship. And to rob God of this power is simply to rob God of his godness. So how can we respond to this? I think we can respond to this idea of God being an omnipotent God, an all-powerful God, in at least two ways. First way, because God created all things in the universe out of nothing, then we must conclude that there is no matter, no material in the universe that is eternal. Everything had a beginning. The only thing that's never had a beginning, the only person that's never had a beginning is God. He's the uncaused cause. He's always been. God doesn't have a birthday. He's never had a beginning where he can look back and go, there was a time where I did not exist, and then I started existing, and I started going on from there. God is the eternal God. He's never had a birthday. He has always existed. But everything that he's created does have a beginning. So from the starry host to the deepest ocean, everything has a beginning. And because this is true, we have great reason to give worship to our God alone. To worship anything other than God would be to worship something of created worth, be something to worship something of finite value. Because everything has a beginning. Why worship something so below God? God is infinite. God is good. God is the fount of love, grace, and peace. And if he says, I'm going to create other things, why would we ever want to create or worship created things when we could actually have the opportunity to worship the creator? To worship anything other than God would be worshiping something of finite value. And it is to rob God by giving what is exclusively owed to him away to an unworthy recipient. And it is for this reason in Romans 1 that we see God giving sinners over to their sin. Why? Paul writes this, because these sinners, these Gentiles, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. The condemnation that comes upon all of us is what we talked about a couple weeks ago is this, that our hearts are so in love with creation that we actually worship creation in whatever manifest way that it shows up in your life, what we do is go, man, God, I love the gifts that you give me. Then we end up worshiping the gifts instead of the gifter. We look at creation and go, man, God, I love this creation that you've given me. And we end up worshiping creation instead of the creator. Surveying God's power in creation is meant to stir us up to worship of the creator. So I think that's one way that we can respond to this, the idea of creation, power coming together. It's meant to stir our hearts. We're meant to look around and go, man, that is awesome. And here's bad grammar. God's more awesomer. Right? That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to walk out of here and go, man, that is beautiful. God, you're beautiful. That is majestic. God, you're more majestic. And we're supposed to live a life of worship by looking at creation. That's one way. And the second way and last way, I think, is this. 
the scriptures tie together very closely the ideas of creation and salvation. Creation and salvation. The omnipotent God to whom belongs the power to create something out of nothing is the same God who exhibits the same power when he creates new hearts in sinful people. See, God is not just the creator of the material world around us. If you are a born-again believer in this room, you are exhibit A on God's creation power being directly applied to you because you have a new heart that was once stony, now made flesh. You had a heart of darkness that has now been made new because the creation power of God spoke, and boom, you were brought into the kingdom of the beloved Son. There is no better place in Scripture that ties the idea of creation and salvation together than in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And this is why I had you guys turn here. And so in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and 6, Paul writes this, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So in one verse there, Paul comes along, and it's almost like he has the Genesis scroll open, and he's reading the Genesis 1 account, and what he sees is this. Man, I see how God is just exhibiting raw, omnipotent, beautiful, majestic power, how he's just speaking, and light is coming in, how he's speaking, and planets, and how he's speaking, and there's waters, and how he's speaking, and there's livestock, and fish, and birds, and vegetation, how he's just creating man. And he said, just as God had darkness, and he spoke into the darkness, I want light, and light was created, so God has done the same thing in your hearts and my hearts when he looks on our dark, disgusting, rebellious, treasonous hearts and goes, I want the light of Jesus Christ to penetrate that darkness. And Paul says it's the same omnipotent power that creates light out of dark, creates old heart to new heart. God's power is displayed in his act of creation. He speaks and brings all of creation into existence. In the first creation, darkness is dispersed by God exercising the power of his word and creating light. And so it is the same with the salvation of our souls. God dispels the darkness of sin by illuminating our hearts with the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The material creation in Genesis began with light, and so also does our spiritual creation. God shines into our hearts by the work of the Holy Spirit, and then spiritual life begins. We'll wrap it up with this. This is why we can't strip God of his power. This is why if your God, as an omnipotent God, is disgusting to you, you're traveling a false road. Because the moment you say, man, I cannot stand the fact that God is in the heavens and he does as he pleases, I find that to be a distasteful thing about my God. The moment that you step on that ground and start building a theology, a foundation, a doctrine, a life of practice and work and missions and whatever on that ground, you're building on a house, or you're building on a foundation of sand. Why? Because you're just undercutting the very power of the gospel to go into dark and rebellious hearts and make them new. This is why we can't strip God of his power, especially his power in creation. To strip God of his power to create by the proclamation of his word would be to undercut the power of God in redeeming sinners. Let's pray.
God, I pray that these words would go forth and that you, Father, would be magnified. God, may conversation spring up as we go out from here about how great and glorious and good is the fact that our God is omnipotent. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. He reigns over everywhere. In every way. And God, I pray that you would light our hearts up with joy and with hope and they would stir our affections for Jesus Christ. May our conversation be sweet and sprinkled with the joy of Christ because Christ has come and God has shined light on our darkened hearts. In Christ's name I pray.